Hey, you can remain standing for the reading of God's word. I, I messed up. The, I'm sorry. Y'all, we'll let you go. How about that? You want? I don't know. I don't know what to do. I'm not good at that. I don't know. I don't mean to leave you hanging or out there, but hey, we are going to read uh, Psalm 23 together. Uh, so again, at the outset, uh, we're, we're studying through the life of David and taking here this middle month of 2023 to read through and think through and prayerfully, by God's grace, be transformed by Psalm 23. And really what I mean by that is transformed by the God of Psalm 23. You might know Psalm 23 really well, but we don't want to just know the psalm. We want to know the God the psalm speaks of. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Father, when you are our shepherd, the testimony of our souls is we have everything we need. We shall not want. And Father, when we go through life and we look to other things to be our shepherd, all we know is want. We ask now for grace Not to be a people who can recite Psalm 23, but a people who fight our spiritual battles, who who pray, who live, who, who trust the God that Psalm 23 speaks of. We're not looking for more information. We're looking for your spirit to bring renewal and transformation to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of course, you may be seated, and I'd love for you to keep Psalm 23 there open before you. And verse 4 is really going to be our focus together this morning. And it has that poetic reference, the valley of the shadow of death. And that's a poetic reference to talking about things in your life that uh, you can start talking about pretty quick. I mean, you know the things in your life that you would say, when I went through that That was the valley of the shadow of death, the the difficult things, the unexpected things, the things that you, if you sort of wrote the script of your life, you probably wouldn't have put in there. But God's led you to it, through it. For some of you in the room, I know this, that this is not something in the past. This is something very present. Like you would say, I am in that valley right now. we got to wrestle with this because at the end of verse 2, in the beginning of verse, or the end of verse 2 and the end of verse 3, we get that verb, he leads me. He leads me. And then, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So, theologically speaking, God is the one who leads you to the valley of the shadow of death. David knows all about that. He knows about living in caves having no idea what tomorrow holds, but still fighting to trust that God will keep his promises. He knows about experiencing deep disappointment and pain. He knows about his trust being betrayed. You know what I'm saying? 
Like somebody that you said, I can count on them, and then it turned out that he couldn't count on them. David knows about uh, his own family wounding him. About waking up in the morning. I don't know if this ever happens to you. You wake up in the morning, and your first waking thought is, oh, that's today. That's what I'm going to face today. He's got stress at work, stress at home that reaches the breaking point. Again, David knows what it's like to walk with God, wanting and, and, and really trusting his promises, but, but still fighting to believe if they'll ever come true. David knows what it's like to, to be confused about what God's actually up to. Anybody ever been there? Like, why am I here and why is this going on? The, the valley, the, the, the original Hebrew, it, uh, it's the valley of deep darkness, now, again, the, the dynamics of this psalm is he's the shepherd. That means we're the sheep. And God wants you to graciously receive that analogy because sheep are about the most weak, trying to be polite, unintelligent, terrible eyesight. There's basically no animal that a sheep could ever get in a fight with and win. They're defenseless. They're pretty harmless. You've probably seen signs, beware the dog. You've never seen a sign that says, heads up, beware the sheep. I mean, you just need to be on your guard. You'd be because, and again, it wasn't that God went looking for an analogy. Uh, he created sheep that way. He made them so that we could understand this is what we're like spiritually. And sheep, when it's bright daylight, don't have great eyesight. When they're in a valley of deep darkness, I mean, they'll stumble all around unless... Unless they have a good shepherd. What if the psalm read this way? Just listen to think about this for a moment. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In, in other words, what if the psalm was written, but it didn't include verse 4? Now, obviously, it does include verse 4, but if it didn't include verse 4, it would be a beautiful psalm, wouldn't it? But I would venture to guess it wouldn't be our most beloved psalm. I think it's verse 4. That actually is what draws our attention. And if we took a poll and said, what is your favorite psalm? Most of us, probably the one that would win, would be Psalm 23. And I think it's because of verse 4. Because if he took verse 4 out, the psalm would be beautiful, but it wouldn't really be true to life, would it? No one would say, my whole life has been green pastures and still waters. And it'll be that way until I'm with him in glory. Now, you know that's not how your life is. What, what, what is it about verse 4 that draws us in? I think it's because people of real, genuine faith. I'm talking about the kind of faith that has been tested by fire. They would point at verse 4, and with tears in their eyes, they would say, yes and amen. It was in the valley of deep darkness that I learned you really are with me. Now, you're with me at the green pastures, and I appreciate that. You were with me by the still waters, but I learned your trustworthiness in the valley. And the second part of that testimony is also this. I also learned what was not trustworthy in the valley. As a matter of fact, I didn't know really honestly what I was trusting in until I went through the valley and realized they, 
they or that isn't going to be sufficient to get me through this. The only one who can is the one who led me here. And that's the Lord. So life's not all green pastures and still waters. God doesn't keep us there. Why not? I'm going to give you an answer, but then we're going to really think through this. Why does not keep us there? Because he loves you. That's why. Because he loves you. He cares about you. That's the simple answer, but we're going to go deeper. James says it this way. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We listen in perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sounds a whole lot like I shall not want. I shall not want because the Lord is my shepherd. Testing what? It's testing our faith, yes. But testing what? Testing what you really do trust in. Because all of us, all of us, tend to trust in things that aren't trustworthy. Hey, I love my local library. I love Braswell Library. I go there pretty frequently. And uh, not long ago, I was, I was there, and I always do a drive, or not drive-by, I'm not driving in the library. I do a, a pass-by, the new releases. And there's a title, because I was thinking about this uh, message, that caught my attention. And the title was Trust. And it's by Dr. Henry Cloud. And I've read some things by him. And it tends to be pretty, pretty helpful. So, uh, so I picked it up. And I didn't read the whole book, but I read enough of it to tell you what it says. So you know you don't have to go read it. I haven't taken it back yet, so you can't check it out yet. It's still sitting in my office. I'll, I'll loan it to you, though. But this is Henry Cloud says, Trust is the fuel of life. Like, everything about your life runs on trust. Or, this is where some of us are, the lack of trust. And, and he gives some examples just in everyday life. Like a single person is deciding whether someone is relationship potential. What we're really talking about is, can you trust that person? It's a married person trying to identify what's the real problem in my marriage. Probably trust. It's a company who's trying to address a concern with a vendor, a supplier, or even an employee. And I regret saying that because some of you said, well, that's my day tomorrow. I'm going to figure that out. Okay, so it's a parent who's setting boundaries with a child or teen. It's not easy, is it? And really what we're talking about, the boundaries are boundaries of trust. Some of you have had a child look at you and say, what? what's wrong? Don't you trust me? I like what Colin Smith says. He says, when my teenage ch- children would ask, don't you trust me? I said, no. <laughs> not because I don't, not because I don't love you, but because I don't know yet whether or not you are up for the challenge that's coming. But as a parent, I want to cultivate a character in you that will be trustworthy. A church developing trust in the community it serves, matters, doesn't it? All of these relationships rise and fall on the basis of trust. So our big question this morning is, do you trust God? And the place in your life that that question will most likely be answered is when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, right? We're all together. That's what our focus is on this morning. And I'm just going to briefly read. This isn't going to come on the screen or anything like that, so you're going to have to kind of have to listen and we're going to really emphasize this scripture, I promise. But, but here's what Henry Cloud says, five facts about trust. Five facts about trust. You just listen to him. You trust someone when you believe your needs are understood, felt, and cared about. That's who you trust. Number two, five facts, second one. You trust someone when you feel their motive is for you, not just for themselves. 
You trust someone who has the character needed for what you entrust them with. Number four, you trust someone when you feel they have the ability to do for you what you've entrusted to them. Maybe I said that one already. You don't even trust me to tell you what the trust is. The last one, I think, is you trust someone who has a track record of doing what you need them to do. That's why some of us get to a place where we say, well, I don't trust anybody. A lot of people do end up there, and I, and I get that. But let's take a look at our shepherd. Now, our word's going to be trust. And i got four points. We'll start with this one. You're going to trust. You're called to trust God with everything. Trust God with everything. When we were at a camp, this is similar to one of the illustrations that we saw, so I'm going to use it with, uh, with you. I put a little different twist on it because uh, it's just where my brain went. How many of you have ever played the game Trivial Pursuit? This is really small, and you might not be able to see, but you get, when you play Trivial Pursuit, you get this game piece, right? And uh, it's this little circle, and it's got divisions, and it got wedges in it. How many of you have ever won at Trivial Pursuit? How many of you, if we said tonight we're going to play Trivial Suit, you'd run a thousand miles away? You won't know desire. I'm pretty good at getting the history and the sports questions. That's about it. But the deal is you want to fill up your uh, a game piece and get all the way back home. And so if you get a question right, you get a little wedge. And then you put it in, and then you get another, and you get it in, and then you go. And so you got these divisions. Now, why are we talking about Trivial Pursuit? Here, here's why. Because this is, this is where a lot of us live. You have your life... And you divide it into segments. You got your family life, and that's an important one, and that gets a segment. And then you got your work life, that gets a segment. And, and then you got your hobbies, your leisure, what you do for entertainment, and your exercise. And, and then if you're not careful, you'll, you'll think you're doing well if you give God one of these little segments, right? Like he gets, he gets one too. And I'm gonna tell you, if that is your approach, to following the Lord, that kind of relationship won't make it through the valley of the shadow of death. It won't. Because your relationship with God's not a segment, it's the wheel. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's everything. It's your family in the Lord. Like, I'm going to approach my family with the heart of Christ. I'm going to, my work is not separated. Like, what we're doing here this morning is not separated from the rest of your life. What you're entertained by, what, what you want to do, and so on. It's, if, if, you, if, if God just has a little segment of your life, when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, you'll be so confused. That approach to life never works, and it certainly doesn't work in the valley. That's not the call of God in your life. God's not looking at your life and saying, I'd be so honored having created you, loved you, redeemed you, filled you with the Spirit, and prepared a place for you forever if you just give me a segment of your life that's kind of on par with all those other things. It's, the, it's your whole life. It's what the Scripture says. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Louis Giglio said to us at Pastor Kim, God's not a wedge. He's the will. Let's think through the psalm together. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Hey, friends, when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, it's going to get real clear real quick whose name you really have been living for. And if it's you, if it's your own name, and you get in that valley, you'll be so confused, you'll be angry with God. 
would not be in the midst of the valley able to say, I shall not want, even here. What's the hardest part of your life to entrust to God? Can I give you a few that tend to be really difficult? Your children. It's hard, isn't it? You almost hear Abraham say, Amen, brother. It's hard. It's hard to entrust your children to the Lord. You know what else can be really difficult to entrust to the Lord? Your past. Some of us just say, man, there's something back there. (laughs) If I could do it over again, I would. You can trust him. Hey, when he says all your sins can be forgiven in Christ, guess what he means by that? All of them. Maybe it's your work life. You might think, if I really sought to honor God at work, the competition is going to kill me. If you think about Jesus in the Gospels, think of the trust barriers some people had. How about the rich young ruler? Nice guy, polite, calls Jesus Lord, comes to Jesus and says, hey, here, here, here's what I want to do. I want to inherit eternal life. What's his barrier? It's not that he was kind of anti-God. It's just that his heart was actually set on his riches. Man, there's so many people, so many people who miss the treasures and riches of Christ because they've trusted the temporary and fleeting treasures of the world. Simon Peter wrestled at one time in his life. I don't know if I can trust Jesus to forgive me after what I did. When I did it, when you want to talk about somebody with a past, Jesus is on trial and Peter says, I don't even know who he is. Or the woman with the issue of bleeding. What was her trust issue? I don't know if I can trust that Jesus won't be like every other person I've looked to for help. That's where some people are. They say, well, Jesus, he sounds all fine and good. But everybody I've ever gone to to look for help, they left me worse off than before I asked for help. Or the man with leprosy. Early chapters of the Gospel of Mark. I don't know if I can trust Jesus enough to care about me, to heal me. Remember, that's what he said. If you're willing, if you're willing, you could make me clean. This is a guy who's everywhere he's gone. People say, you got to leave from here. Don't come near me. And he drew near to Jesus. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Can I give you some good news? He's willing. Scripture says he stretched out his hand. And said, I am. You can trust God with everything. Second, you can trust God above everything. And we're going to be studying through the life of David. And we've already seen together in our studies in 1 Samuel that the people did not reject God by walking away from him. They didn't go to God and say, we don't want anything else to do with you. They didn't reject God by walking away from him. They rejected God by adding to him. They didn't come to him and say, we're done with these sacrifices, we're done with those songs, or we're done with your name. That's not what they said. They said, God, we want you to stick around. We just want to add some other things to you that we can trust to. A king, for starters. A king to fight our battles. That's That's what they said. And we can be here. It's not that we don't, we would say we don't trust God. We do trust God. We just also trust our money. We trust our resilience. We trust our health. We trust our ingenuity. We trust that we can go to the library and check out some books and figure it out. Y'all, the hardest place, I, I, I want to choose my words carefully. I think the hardest place to get to in life is to get to where you trust God alone. You trust only Him. I mean, and, and, and you can trust your, your family members and you trust your 
I hope, by God's grace, you trust your church, but you're trusting them in the Lord. Do you know what I mean? When I was in the seventh grade, and y'all probably, I've pastored here long enough to know, you know where this kind of thing's going. Middle school is tough. I was in the seventh grade, I was at Benvenu Middle, a place that's so difficult, they tore it down. They tried to put an old navy there, and that didn't even work. I mean, I think the place is kind of, I don't know, anything's going to thrive there. Maybe it will. I mean, maybe you work there. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. But I was in the seventh grade. We're in homeroom, right? Homeroom's where you go at the start of the day, and they make announcements. And the announcement was, coming up, there's going to be the Benvenu Middle School Dance. And as soon as I heard that, I checked out. I was like, there is nothing on earth I would rather less attend than the Benvenu Middle School Dance. Well, I get to lunch that day, and uh, three of my buddies, our little, you know, middle school, you, you, uh, hopefully you got a, a group of friends that you can sit with and get that, uh, get that going. And so I sat down, and these guys, to much to my surprise, were all about it. Like, we are going to the middle school dance. And I said, I'm not going. They said, we got to go. I quickly dismissed any notion, even under their pressure, of attending the brutal social and psychological experiment known as the middle school dance, Right? I did not think it would go particularly well for me to attend. But they were persistent. This is 1991, y'all. No cell phones. You make plans at the lunch table, and it's, your word is your oath. So I said, fine, I'll go. So I said, what am I going to wear? All I've got is San Francisco 49er t-shirts. I mean, well, you're not going to wear that to the middle school dance. So I get dressed up. Even my mom was like, are you sure? Are you sure you want to go? And I said, yeah, my buddies are going to meet me there. They said, I guess, so I go. So my mom drops me off. The dance is in the same cafeteria. The plan was made. So I get my courage up, open the door, walk in, start scanning. You're trying to look. You don't want to be desperate, you know. So I'm trying to play it cool, and I'm just looking and doing the head nod. And I'm, but internally, I'm like, where are they? And I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I go around the entire room. Go to the real slow, because you're going to go to your coat check, and I go real slow, take it off real slow. Please, where are they? Coat's done, sweat stains, you know, the whole deal. Give me that coat back, actually. I think I need that back. And They didn't show up. I almost feel like crying right now. I don't, they didn't show up. <laughs> Longest night of my life. I trusted my friends to do something that they said they would do. And they didn't. Now that's a rather silly example, though it wasn't all that silly to me at the time. You, you probably have deeper, more painful examples in your life. When you realized you were counting on somebody who wasn't trustworthy. Hard thing about the valley is it can reveal some things that you trusted in that you didn't know you trusted in until they got shaken or taken. You trust God above everything. Third, trust God in everything. And we want to be good students of the Bible and take it seriously. And, and I want you to see something changes 
between verses 1 and 2 and 3 and then verse 4. We're going to read them again, and I want you to see if you can pick up on what changes. This is significant. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Anybody pick up on what changed? It's just us in here. You can say it out loud if you picked it up, because it's significant. Somebody said something about my hearing. So I just asked you to do it, and you did it. Okay? First, two, first three verses, he, verse four, you. Why? It's the valley, y'all. It's the valley that he goes from, I've heard about him, to you're right here. And I don't think you get that or get there without the valley. Who's a great man or woman of faith in the scripture that you can look at and say, oh, there was no valley for them. Can you say that of Abraham? Can you say that of Esther? Can you say that of Ruth? Can you say that of Paul? No, no. In, in fact, you probably know them in light of the adversity that they faced for the testing of whether or not they really trusted God. And it's going to be the same for you. Because in the valley, he becomes personal. He's with me. He's alongside me. It's not theoretical anymore. I can sing all day long that I need you, I need you, I need you. But then sometimes you stand in a place and you say, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. I didn't know what I was saying. And now I do. I really need you. Not a theoretical shepherd anymore. He's a personal shepherd that you've got to rely on. It's one thing to read about Abraham and Sarah going through the valley. It's another thing to face what they faced. The deep disappointment, the heartache. It's one thing to read about Jeremiah hungering for God in a generation that cares about trivial and passing things. It's another thing to live it. It's one thing to read about Paul's reputation being maligned and all sorts of things being said of him that weren't true and his motivations for ministry being lied about. It's another thing to live it. It's one thing to read about Naomi's husband and sons dying and the depth of grief she experienced. It's another thing to live it. The God of green pastures is the God of the valley of deep darkness. He's the same. But I do have to tell you, you'll learn things about him in the valley you would have never seen or heard or known or trusted if it was only still waters. There have been times in my life in the midst of the darkness when I say, God, I really want to trust you. I'm not sure I do fully, but I trust that you trust you and I'm going to trust that. Number four, trust God through everything. Through everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, one of the realities of the valley is you do realize what you fear. You, you could learn in the valley that you, you, you fear death. You could learn in the valley that you fear the approval of other people. You need that. Or, or you can learn that, that you f- fear the Lord. A couple of things about this real quick is uh, I love the word through. He does not say even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death. He says I'm going to walk through it. In other words, the valley is a necessary place, but it's not a permanent place. So you might need God's grace to believe this if you're currently in the valley. If you're, if, when you're in the valley, you do feel like it's going to 
be permanent, right? But it's not. He will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8, 28. This psalm does talk about a permanent place. That's verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall, here's our verb, dwell, abide, reside permanently in the house of the Lord forever. Now this might sound pithy and just real simplistic and I don't mean it to. You kind of have to be careful how you say things to people who are in the valley. We learned that with Job and his friends. Man, when they just showed up and tried to explain, they were, they were good as long as they just kind of sat there and wept with Job. When they started trying to explain everything, that's when it went sideways. So I don't want to have a heart like Job's friends. I do want to be a real friend to you. So I want you to know when I say this, there have been times in my life if somebody said this to me, I would say, but just set your heart to trust him through it. And if it's not good yet, He's not done yet. Easy to say. Easy to say, I know. But if you'll extend me a measure of grace, I want to say some things that might be hard things to hear, particularly if you're in the valley. Number one, you need to be very careful about making the valley your identity. We kind of live in a generation where from my vantage point, you're going to be tempted to make the identity of your life the valley that you go through. And friends, that's not the same as making your identity the one who walks with you through the valley. Number two, There are some things that you will go through that won't be through until this life is through. Did you see the trajectory? We're going to get through it, but the table that he's going to make a fellowship to a degree, yes, is in this life. You can know that because he said, where's the table made? In the presence of my enemies. So you can have fellowship with him in this life in the midst of all the deep darkness. In fact, the whole reason there's a shadow there to begin with is some light's got to be present somewhere. I mean, if there's just no light, it's just utter darkness. But there's a shadow of death. But there's a light there too. You can have fellowship with him. But there are some things, y'all. Some physical adversity. That you might endure for decades. And I wish, I don't know, that's, the, that's, that's not the right way of saying it. In line with scripture, I don't mean that I wish I didn't have to tell you that. But, but, but we can trust God. That's what we're talking about. But this is about the hardest fight you'll have. So I want to arm you with some things, Right? Because there's some weapons that show up, and they're right here in this verse. You're not always going to dwell in the valley. So don't make the valley your identity. 
Temptation for our generation is to emphasize the struggle over the one with you in the struggle. So if you're not out of the valley yet, don't proclaim it's your permanent residence. You can say, I don't know how long I'll be here, but I know I won't be here forever. It might feel permanent. It's, it's not. When will this end? Why is this taking so long? What does a person in the valley most need, according to Psalm 23 and verse 4? It's a couple things. One, if you're in the valley, this is what you most need. And number two, if you're going to minister and serve people who are in the valley, you want to know that this is what they most need. What do they need, according to verse 4? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Comfort. What does that word mean? It's not, don't think pillow and soft bed. Think, I'm going to bear up my soul. I'm going to be resilient. I'm going to keep believing some things. So what does David say he's comforted by? The shepherd, you're with me, right? So your presence is with me. No substitute for the presence of God. And then your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So obviously we're still with that poetic image of a shepherd. And any shepherd who's doing a good job has two things with him. A rod and a staff. What are those? This may come as a surprise to you, but I've never literally shepherded a day in my life. Never been entrusted with sheep. Now, I'm a pastor, and those got some similarities, but you know what I mean, a literal shepherd. So I had to do some reading on this. Here's what a rod is. A rod is uh, a rod. How about that? But a rod, when you're in the valley of deep darkness, a rod is what a shepherd would hold out kind of lengthwise. He'd hold it out, and it's what the sheep are supposed to go under so he can count them. Jesus makes an allusion to this. Uh, my sheep know my name, or my sheep know my voice. They obey. So, so shepherds do this all sorts of ways. Some had a whistle that they would do, and I can't do that, or a call or whatnot. And you say, all right, this is just me doing it. You know, they would do it much better than this. All right, y'all, let's go. And then the sheep would come under the rod. And as they come, he would count them. Spread out. We're going to go through the valley. We're going to count you. One, two, three, four, five. You've got a God who gets to 99, says, wait a minute. I started with 100. I'm going to leave these 99. I'm going to go get the one because he counts. That was the rod. And then there's the staff. And the staff is what you think it is, like a shepherd's crook, where he'd protect. He'd, he'd say, well, you're wandering. Come back over here. Or hey, here's some wolves. We're going to fight them off. Those are the two tools of the shepherd. One to count, one to keep. One says, you belong to me. And one weapon says, I'm going to protect you and keep you. So one way I would encourage you to think about this, just in your mind, you're going to be able to go there pretty fast. I got a rod to count and I hold it out lengthwise and I got a staff that I hold. And where does your mind go? It goes, in my heart, goes right to the cross. It's right to the cross. If you belong to him, that's how he's going to count you, friends. There's no other way into his sheepfold but that. You have to come by grace through faith that Christ shed his blood, hung on a cross, died for your sins. He hung in deep darkness right? And, and then 
That's a glorious truth, but that's not all. He says, who's going to snatch him out of my hand? I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. If you've come to faith in Christ, what the shepherd did for you on the cross was he actually became like a sheep led to slaughter. He counts you. Some of you need to grab a hold of this, I think. He counts you. He doesn't count your sins against you. He shed his blood. He's going to protect you. He's going to keep you. Do you trust him? You trust someone when you believe your needs are understood, felt, and cared about. He knows you better than you know you. He knows what your needs really are. You trust someone when you feel their motive is for you, not just for themselves. Can anybody look at the cross and not understand fully that he is not concerned just with himself? At the great cost to himself, he lays down his life for you. You trust someone when you feel they have the ability to do for you what you have entrusted to them. You trust someone who has the character needed for what you entrust them with. And you trust someone who has a track record of doing what you need them to do. You can, you can, you can trust Jesus. In light of the cross, I can trust God with everything, above everything, in everything, through everything. He is trustworthy. I'll give you a closing illustration. We're driving home from youth camp, and it's a little bit of a long drive, I'll just be honest. We pulled over and stopped at a rest area near Fayetteville. I don't know about if you know this, but there's this whole thing going on I-95 about done till the ends of the earth. It's construction, no shoulder on either side. It's just kind of a mess. I'm already stressed out about that. And uh, I, I, I glanced at the weather. We'd already been through a storm, and I kind of said to myself, whew, I'm glad we're done with that. And then I got the weather app out of my phone, and it just shows this not just green and yellow, red, you never want to see that. And I said, oh, I wonder where that's going. Oh, wow, it's going right where we're going. How about that? So I rounded up the group and I said, sorry, guys, driving back to Florida. Now, that's not what I said. Why not? I had a destination and a responsibility. <laughs> so I got to get home. But there's a big storm. If you don't have a destination in mind, your life will become about avoiding all the storms. If you don't actually have to get somewhere, you say, well, that weather, weather there, let's just, we'll just ride west for a while. Or we'll ride east for a while. In fact, your whole life starts to become about just avoiding the storms. But we had to get home. And I headed out to get home and other people in the group coming with me. And guess what, y'all? The weather uh, tracker was accurate. Storm came up right where the road work was. I was like, could I not have one or the other? You might feel that way. It just does seem to be. I'll say this as a pastor, and I can't explain it. It does feel sometimes like some people go through storms, and it is not evenly distributed. 
I sometimes say that. I mean, I'm just being honest. As a pastor, I say, why is this family over here got like 10 things they're carrying while one over here says, ah, just one or two. And everybody, I don't mean that in an insulting way. I don't understand it. But I would say, could we have the road construction or the storm? Why do they both have to come at the same time? And I don't know. And I don't know for you either. But the storm comes and I glanced in my rearview mirror and I saw Kelsey driving the Penske truck. And I got to tell you briefly about the Penske truck. Kelsey's not here, so I can say this. It was capped at 75 miles an hour, and I teased her. That's the hardest thing she's ever had to do in her life is to drive that truck, and it can't go over 75 miles an hour. Makes me lie down in green pastures. That's what I thought of. And I looked at that Penske truck, and as we're going through the storm, I said to myself, well, that's a demonstration of God's goodness from our drive down there when the tire blew out, and wow, we're going to get everybody there. We got all this luggage. We got kids and luggage, and we got a, a, another church. She said, man, Sure. Glad to help. And then Penske truck is available. So we got all the luggage in that. And, and this is what I'm getting at. As you, as you go through a storm, I pray that you can look in the rearview mirror of your life and say, here's some things that he's led us through. And if you've got nothing else that comes to your mind, most assuredly, friends, you can look at the cross. About the time we reached Selma, the storm was over. And we were almost home. I don't know how it's going to work in your life. I don't know if there's going to be a break. The storm ends and you've got a couple of miles of smooth driving. And then you get home. Or man, if the storm's going to blow till the day you get home. But you're going to get home. I want to trust the one who is leading me home. Even when I'm not home yet. Because I can look at the cross and his proven track record and say, he will get me there. Through many tribulations must we enter the kingdom. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, we're going to pray. But here's the invitation, and it's real simple. Do you trust him? I mean, seriously, do you trust him? Well, I will be here as your pastor, uh, who, who I love you. I'm glad to pray with you. If you've got a burden, a concern, and you just might say, I would love someone to pray for me that I have hope in the midst of the valley. I, will, I would love to do that. You might want to come here to the front and just say, Lord, I'm going to need some help to endure some things. Or you know somebody in your life. And you say, God, I want to be a source of comfort for them, of encouragement to them as they go through this storm. Last point. Here's the truth. If you're alive. You're either headed for a storm, in a storm, or just coming out of one to, in time, go back through one. You need a shepherd. There's only one that's trustworthy, and his name is Jesus. Let's stand together, and we'll pray together. Have a time of response together. Father, a couple of things that I pray as um, we respond to your words. First of all, thank you. Thank you, you're a good shepherd to us even when we don't think that you are or say that you are or realize that you are. Thank you for your patience towards us, your kindness. Love is patient and love is kind and you are those things in abundance to us and we're grateful. Father, I pray for those in their lo- who are in a season of life where everything in their life is being shaken. It just is, and it's, it seems unceasing, and there's no end in sight. Lord, I pray grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That you'll work in such a way that the testimony of their life is, you're with me, you're with me. 
rod and your staff, they comfort me. I cling to the cross. All my hope is in Jesus. Deepen our trust in who you really are, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.